because I didn't say what I wanted to say. And I stopped reading. That's why I did that. All right. <laughs> We're going to go back. <laughs> reading is what? Reading is reading Fundamental. Is All right, y'all. Uh, welcome to episode three of the United Men's Project. My name is Joseph James. This is Caleb Roberts. And this is Julian Owens. All right. So how many episodes before we get canceled? Uh, the whole show or, you know, us as individuals? Actually, no, just Julian. Just Julian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll be the first person. Okay. I'm like 95% sure. Yeah, I give myself to like the end of April at the... All right. That's the latest low key. Okay, we got to find your uh, replacement sooner, sooner than <laughs> I thought. But, you know, it's all good. <laughs> Somebody on oh, standby man. as soon as he say something crazy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, no, no. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, let our listeners know if you uh, if you want to join the pod, there's gonna be an opening in two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. But be sure to have a personality, you know, because without me, there is none on here. Sorry. Yikes, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so, so anyway. Uh, Given that, we thought it would be a great time to uh, unpack cancel culture on the uh, on the podcast. You know, talk about cancel culture before you get canceled. That's how you do things, right? So they always preach. They preach be proactive. Just trying to get our pleas out there, so y'all know what our heart was before we said the crazy stuff that we were about to say. <laughs> Count it to my head, not my heart. You know, that's what the church ladies say, right? They didn't do that with Lil Nas X. Uh, <laughs> they were right at his head. They didn't care nothing about his heart. Right to his head. Oh my god. Oh man, that's hilarious. Counted to his sneakers, yeah. Throw some holy water on that boy. <laughs> Definitely. You know that was all across the country. He needs some help. Oh my god. But anyway, let's uh let's dive into this. So, you know, we've seen over the last month, we've obviously seen little Nas X uh get canceled. Kind of. I don't know if it worked. I don't know what happened, but he Definitely was in the news. Definitely not. Uh, we saw the whole NCAA controversy with uh, the disparities between the men's and women's facilities. And, you know, we also just saw Paul Pierce. So we'll see what actually happens on that. The truth will come out. Ah. Don't worry. The truth will come out. There have, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We see what you did there. You know, I try. So so let's dive into cancel culture. Let's Let's explain it a little bit more because it's really... A broad umbrella term that's used for for a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. Uh, for me, even like making this podcast and through our first episodes, it's forced me to look at how I'm talking about topics. Uh, just like little phrases I'm saying, if those things are offensive at all, and you know, like the whole thing of uh, cancel culture is crazy because there's a huge power dynamic that comes with it. Cancel culture means so many things. And I think we don't have a term for what we mean and what kind of power we're trying to use when we talk about cancel culture. Uh, For example, like if someone taps me, there's a power difference from if they're tapping me to what I would call a punch. You know, those are can be considered similar actions like the person is touching me. But are you tapping me where it's soft or it's strong enough where it can be a punch. And, you know, you never know kind of the retaliation you're going to get or the 
the the scale that what somebody's trying to do. Are they trying to call you out? Are they trying to hold you account accountable? Or are they trying to get you out of here? And like when right. you're talking in public, that's what you're trying to think of. Like these social movements are made where somebody's trying to do one of these things. We call it all cancel culture, but there's a huge power difference between calling someone out and just saying, hey, what you did is terrible or trying to get you out of society in general. Just I don't want to hear anything else from you. Right. Yeah. I mean, Caleb, you nailed it. Right. It's this idea of the power dynamic that's altered. Right. And it's about the power dynamic of accountability. So, you know, accountability, traditionally, we determine it based on like oversight. So there are groups, there are these external groups that have a, a level of oversight on something that's happening. So they're what's normally holding us accountable. Um, and then, you know, we get the internet introduced and the power of accountability gets democratized. So now everybody has a voice. Like it starts with like the Yelp crowd, like everybody can leave a review now. So everybody feels, you know, this level of emboldenment. And it's like, you used to have people who, who rated food. That's what they did professionally. But what, what is the, what's the level of accountability that you actually have? Or what's the level of knowledge you have to base your opinions on or to do things, right? And that all changes when things become more and more accessible. And when things are like really accessible, if you don't have a way of making sure people are acting responsibly, you're just going to have issues. Like think about a car. Like if you have a, if you're driving, you have to have some type of license. And, you know, even when you're out on the road, there are people still there policing it. But, you know, when, when we look at it from like the internet standpoint, there's no one there to police it. Anyone can access the internet and you immediately have a level of cachet just based on your ability to, you know, create a following and you can create a following for terrible reasons. Right. So like there's nothing that ensures the people who are organizing on the internet and and using it and weaponizing it are doing so responsibly. Um, So I just, I don't know where we're going to go with that. And then, you know, like Caleb was saying, so many things fall into this umbrella term of cancel culture. If we just continue to be really lazy about how we label things, we're never going to actually get anywhere because you know, like he said, a tap and a hit and being punched are completely different. And so we've just been throwing, you know, people being held accountable or people literally just like changing something um, as this like monster of cancel culture. And like, that's just crazy to do because it's just irresponsible. So what I'm hearing is we essentially need to advance the language of quote unquote cancel culture because there are actual issues being brought to the table by marginalized groups and they're essentially being all thrown under this big term and sometimes this term specifically is used for fear mongering and then in in turn the marginalized groups don't actually get their issues addressed the way they're asking for them to be and and like I, i understand exactly what you're saying julian and one thing i want to put is that when we're talking about cancel culture, intent is important. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you just call it cancel culture, like someone can say your intent is to ruin me. And the right. intent could be just for you to be a better manager, for you to be a better business owner, for you to be a better person. And when we don't look at the intent and that's why language and that's why I'm talking about tapping versus a punch. Like if we don't have language and we call all those things, those uh, forms of touch, we call it all a punch, then when you hear, oh, so-and-so got punched today. We heard 3,000 people get punched today. You know, like, it's right. a... Yeah, it sounds worse than it actually is, Exactly, right? exactly. Like, and so I think what we can do right now is talk about why 
tools like cancel culture and call out culture and, and holding people accountable were created. I mean, yeah, I touched on the, the reason for it to begin with. I think it all falls back on this idea of accountability, right? Um, and you, there have to be ways in which you can hold others responsible. Otherwise, they can just step all over you. Um, and I think, you know, this idea of uh, holding people accountable with financial repercussions has always been the case. Um, and I think it gets villainized when, uh, you know, people with less power or traditionally less power are the ones that are able to kind of like broker this this newfound power by saying, hey, we are putting pressure on groups or we're putting pressure on businesses that have traditionally, you know, called the shots. And so I really think it's just a way for groups to have oversight collectively. Um, but, you know, like I said, like, again, this really just comes back down to that power dynamic where that's what's been supercharged. We've never had a social engine like the Internet before. And, you know, like just think about like guns, like the difference between uh, a musket and an AR-15 is the increase in technology. So it's like if we're going to have these increases in technology, we have to also have increases in our standards and in, in our understanding of how we evaluate things. And I don't think we've done a good enough job with the internet when it comes to using social media to galvanize people and, you know, potentially create and weaponize their voices. And that brings up a, a really good topic, Joseph, something that we've discussed pre previously, um, and that's branding. Because on one side of things, you, you're right, you have people that aren't necessarily uh, using the power of social media to, to its fullest. And then on the other side of things, you have the GOP essentially branding cancel culture as as this monster to their base and using it to to fear monger and essentially strengthening the heck out of their base and that's that's especially it happened over these last like five or six years yeah and you have to remember with in terms of branding like i remember back in the day canceling was just something that was birthed out of like black twitter everybody said oh that's cancel and it was just a very cavalier term nobody really meant anything by it it was just kind of like hey that's on pause for 15, you know, 20 yeah. minutes, like, hey, we're yeah. not going to touch that right away. Or, hey, they said something wild to me, like, let me cancel them for a day, check on my mental health, and then right. come back to it. Um, and then once the word culture got thrown behind it, it became this political tool. And I think it also just became this, like, political firestorm of something that people should fear, like you were saying. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's always scary because I think we've already seen how it can get co-opted in terms of the, the narrative behind it. Yeah. And, and that's like getting back to even the angst of starting a podcast. Like you say, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get canceled. And that is an umbrella phrase. Most likely we won't get canceled. Like, I don't even know if we're going to get to a point where we're big enough to truly get canceled. That would be a blessing <laughs> to, be, to be big enough <laughs> to even get canceled is is a, is a crazy amount of influence. But um, are we praying to get canceled right now? Yeah, man, please cancel. Is that gold? Is that gold? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about that. I, I don't know if I want to. I don't want that smoke. But I think it's like something that we would get called out for or held accountable for is our word choice. Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing I'm feeling. That's the angst I feel. It's like, hey, you're going to say something and the public has a right to hold me accountable to how I phrase things, to my point of view and all those things. That is so much different than getting canceled in the intent of can of canceling. And what the, the right has done is effectively said every point at which there is a, a discrepancy between how I think I'm saying it and how you're receiving it is you trying to cancel me. 
And it's incorporating so many things that we talked about before. And it's just so hard because how they're branding it and the intent of what we're using it as is totally different. You know, holding somebody accountable and getting them out of here are two different things. But they're always branded as the same. And uh, that is a strategy by the right to do that, to make sure that everything is uh, talked about as this one fell swoop of of getting people um, to act right and forcing them to act right. And when and when they're branding cancel culture, they're branding everything that is accountability as cancel culture. And so now anytime there's some form of accountability and people have to think about what they've done um, or who they've been in the past or how that could affect someone, it's met with two really strong emotions, one being fear and one being resentment. So you have a group of people who are fearful because they think that, you know, all of these disproportionate numbers of headlines that they're seeing where people are being, um, you know, called out for the things that they've done or people are being held responsible for the things that they've done. Um, all they're seeing are these examples in where people have gone too far because that's what makes the news. That's those are the things that people click on. And so they see it as this thing that's irrational and there's there's no um there's not an appropriate nature for how it's been built over time, right? And then on the other end, you're seeing a level of resentment, which is birthed out of that fear. Uh, and then you also have people who are just resent, resentful of the fact that they have a, a, a loss of power in which they could say any crazy thing that they wanted to say, and they could do any crazy thing that they wanted to do. So when you're combining these things together, there's obviously going to be a really strong reaction that's birthed out of how people have branded cancel culture. Um, and it's the same as with PC culture. And so then you have to think about who benefits from removing accountability. And you have to recognize that drawing on fear and drawing on resentment is a really easy way of building a base. So if I can build a base and my base hates the fact that I, like, I could be called out or I could be held accountable for something, I can't lose, right? And we we remember what that looks like when we have Donald Trump saying he could shoot somebody in the middle of the street and nothing would happen to him. And I think we need to be real. I think we think there's a lot of people who have been canceled, like truly canceled. And I don't think that list is as big as we think. We'll get into the, the positive and negative negatives of that later. But I think we need to identify what are some true moments that people have been canceled. So I think we have to actually talk about what's happening to people. Like we have these terms and without being more specific, we run into the risk of just playing into the ability to be branded. So without pointing out exactly what we mean or what's happening and the the purpose behind it, I think that allows us to get trapped up where people can paint us all with one fell swoop. So let, let's break down a little bit of the different things that is happening to people or the intentions behind uh, what some people brand as cancel culture. Yeah, so the first thing that I would say is there are moments and we've seen them where, you know, some people actually hold themselves accountable for their actions. Barely. And then, and then, <laughs> and then uh, it'll turn around and, and be branded as, as cancel culture. So take mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss, for instance, where they recently held themselves accountable and took a bunch of their books off the shelves for some inappropriate things that were in them. Right, We've seen it before right. where someone holds themselves accountable and then it has nothing to do with actual outside factors, but it, it gets called cancel culture anyways. And then another one is call out culture where people essentially just want to draw attention to an issue. 
And we just we had another example of that uh, recently with the NCAA and their treatment of the women's tournament. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like the women's tournament is a great example where everything gets blown up as being this huge movement about, you know, canceling someone when it's just like, hey, like you haven't done your job like you said you would. And so we're going to make other people aware of it. So there's a level of social pressure for you to do the right thing. But actually, the social pressure isn't what should get you to do the right thing. It's the fact that I just told you, hey, you didn't do your job. So when everything is branded this way, I think it distorts what's going on. And there have been examples of things that are maybe closer to cancel culture, like, you know, boycotting, where it is actually putting in a level of financial pressure on top of the social pressure to, you know, get people to align, you know, get people or companies to just align their values or reevaluate the way they align their values. Um, Because, you know, morality is something that's ever changing. Like what was moral a thousand years ago is going to be completely different than what's moral now and what's, you know, deemed as moral in the future. So companies have to evolve because people are evolving. Things are changing. Um, We're learning more and more. And so we can't be afraid to try and, you know, call each other out and hold each other accountable in, you know, ways that are productive. So really what's being used today and why we see the polarization of this idea of cancel culture is really an idea we've talked about as being emotional capitalism. And it's really like everything in our society is built to get you emotional and then to profit in some way off your emotion, whether that be in advertising dollars, whether that be in time spent on something. If you watched the social dilemma on was that on Netflix? Yeah, it was, on Netflix. Netflix. It was good. It was pretty good. Uh, yeah. Definitely very eye opening. And I think the major thing we can take away is that. All all businesses, all companies are trying to not necessarily get your money. You are far more than just dollars, like your time. And the best way to get you to spend time is to make you emotional about something. And that is a way that, you know, tactics that have been used in organizing to get things done now used on a, a, a hyper level of, you know, social media. We can get you to have emotions about so many things throughout the day and really make you polarized because emotions are polar. You can't be happy and uh, angry at the same time. You're either one more than the other. It's very I shouldn't say not because some people some people do that, but it's very hard to be both at the same time. You got, <laughs> you, hey, y'all mad happy right now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. But like it's very hard for like healthy people to be both. You know, you have to be one or the other about something. So if I can tap into that emotion, I can make you polarized on something. Yeah. I mean, and when you're trying to make people emotional, it's not even about necessarily being right or wanting to present facts. Like the incentive structure is gone from wanting to actually have a correct view on something and be knowledgeable. It's just about riling people's emotions up because, you know, when you have this really like polarized political atmosphere and everyone is already picking sides, you really don't have to do much work to create more division. So If you can create this monster that's coming for you, which is, quote unquote, cancel culture, you know, your work's done for you. And yeah, Joseph, I think emotional capitalism has been so powerful and it's such a powerful tool that we actually lose sight of what it is to cancel someone and the different versions of canceling we have. I mean, let's talk about it. You know, like being told that you can't teach at a university can be a setback for some people. The, the right has called that canceling someone. But I think the idea of canceling and the power it takes is 
not defined correctly. For example, canceling someone like the Muslim ban, stopping people from being able to travel here, mm-hmm. people who are here on you know legitimate terms, not being able to go home. See, that's that's a level of canceling, a level of power we don't talk about. And it's much different from telling someone they can't work at a university when you can go to another university and work. When you can get a different job in a different industry, however, you know, hard that is for you individually, you don't have that group dynamic of, you know, slavery in the prison system or internment camps uh, for Japanese. It just doesn't fit that mode. So there, that, that power even in canceling is is completely different. And I might throw this to you, Julian. I think because we focus so much on this emotional capitalism and using your emotions against or for certain things that we've actually lost that boycott civil rights era effect. Do you think that's something that's still happening today? Do you think we still have the same effect as uh, movements like the civil rights movement had who were affecting change like boycotts did? You're actually starting to touch on something that is probably my biggest issue with what we've been calling cancel culture. And that's how, you know, back in the civil rights days, people actually got up out their seats and we were marching and we we were actually in the streets fighting for change. As opposed to now, I think something that's wrong with cancel culture is a lot of people essentially hop online and just voice their their anger on issues as if that's actually going to bring about real change. But there's no... There's no power in that, really. I mean, I won't say that. There's power to apply pressure that way, for sure. But when you talk about bringing actual change, what does that do? Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. Um, the threshold for, you know, if you want to call it activism, uh, involvement, whatever it is, the threshold for getting involved uh, has been lowered. And I think when you lower that threshold, uh, the passion behind it and the energy behind it is decreased. Um, and I think that that's also been, you know, kind of a, a result of an increase, even though it's not equal, it, there has been an increase in, um, in equity to a degree. And I think people get complacent when disparities aren't as tangible as they used to be, um, or just like not as noticeable. And so I think a lot, in a lot of ways, when we think about modern activism, Julian's completely right about the threshold being lower and it's resulting in people not necessarily galvanizing to do anything that accomplishes things at a mass scale. But I would push back and just say that I do think there is a place for it and I do think it's actually been somewhat effective. Um, you know, we've seen what happened in, in Georgia just the other week where uh, the MLB decided to move their all-star game out of Atlanta uh, based on what was happening with Georgia voter suppression. Um, and we saw something similar happening with uh, the NBA a couple of years ago with their all-star game in Charlotte. And so there have been plenty of examples of public pressure creating movement. But I think that's part of the issue is now all we do is rely on social pressure because things like the internet have supercharged our ability to use social platforms and we don't necessarily put our money where our mouth is. We just voice things, right? And so if we're just voicing things, I don't know how far that goes in terms of moving the needle on really significant matters that require a level of financial pressure that we're not necessarily willing to to put up. And that's my major point. It's like you're giving someone blindfolded a sword and they're just hacking at stuff. Like, yeah. that's how I feel. 
And, yeah. and because I think, and Julian, I'm going to push back, and not a major point, but just something you said where people are at home. No, I don't think it even matters if you're at home. I think we've talked about in the last episode, my problems with the marches in uh, last summer um, during 2020. People were outside, but I think our culture today because of the emotional nature of some of these things allows people to just be mob, have a mob mentality bandwagon. This will get you social credit for going out there and saying black lives matter, not doing anything. Right. You don't have to understand mm-hmm. what's happening. You don't have to have a critical understanding of history. You can just be like, well, everybody's going out and do this. You know, it, it could be a social gathering. Hey, I can meet people at the marches, you know, like I can, credit something, put it in my scrapbook. I was at the marches in 2020. It's a pandemic and I was marching for like, how committed to you, uh, are people, how committed are people to actually changing the issues that they're working on? Or is this, I'm with the group, I'm with the team, we're doing something big right now. I want to be a part of it. And so the question I want to pose back to you, Joseph is, you know, what are the goals of of cancel culture? Like, what are the goals that we're trying to get to uh, as a part of this culture? Um, and we're just going to use it as th- the full phrase uh, for simplicity. But what are the goals that we're trying to meet? And are we meeting them? Well, I mean, I think I actually am going to use the terms that we laid out before because I think they're important. So when it's so, what what we're trying to create is a level of accountability for people and self accountability being the primary, you know, course of action. We want people to think about what they're doing. Like even with the idea of like representation and and this idea that we're bringing in more diverse groups into the workspace, it's to allow for enough conversation to happen where you come to ideas that work for the benefit of everyone, right? Or at least not to to the disadvantage of people. And so what that's about though is engaging with people so you can think about what's happening. And what's happening provides us a level of accountability to say, this is good, this is bad. And we want people to do that internally rather than, you know, relying on, uh, you know, the, the crowd to have to have a really strong reaction that becomes a backlash. You know, like what we talked about earlier in the show is, is like, we have to think now about the things that we say. We have to think about what's happening. We have to think about the actions that we take. We have to think about who we partner with. And those, I think, are things that are new and they might be annoying and their work. But I think as black men, we see the advantage of it. And I think it becomes labor when it's another group, right? So if another group of people are telling you or or have a, a, a position to say something in response to what you put out there, it's an it's another obstacle and it's an inconvenience to how you might normally go about your day. But, you know, as a society, I think it produces better outcomes for people. So I think we really have to balance that. And I think what we're really talking about when we're talking about this culture of accountability, which is what I really want to call it, we're thinking about how we hold ourselves to a standard that provides a level of comfort or at least a level of consideration to people who aren't necessarily just in our bubble. That's a great point, Joseph. And I think if somebody's not holding themselves accountable, then there's a level of education that has to happen. And that's where call out culture comes in. Uh, where I think a major goal of call-out culture is to educate people on the issues. However, it's complicated because you have people calling out an issue on one side, and then on the other side, like we said earlier, it's being construed at misconstrued as cancel culture. And so people have their ears closed to the actual education that, that people are trying to give. And then 
honestly, I feel like it's a little the edu- we're missing the mark on education on both sides sometimes because you started to talk about mob mentality earlier and people just kind of skip over actually educating themselves on the issue and they just te- take the headline and run with it. Exactly. I'm so happy you said that. I got, got a smile on my face. Y'all can't see as <laughs> listeners, but I'm smiling right now. And the a, and a, and a reason for that is because it is education on both sides. The other side that you are talking about, if you're organizing, they're not going to understand your issue. They don't care to understand your issue. That's why they're opposed to you. They don't care. They're doing something completely different. And that's why it's dangerous to have a mob mentality, a group of people who are uneducated about the history and trajectory of issues speaking on behalf of those issues. Mm. So it's education on both sides. If you have a strong group of people, eventually it will reflect on the other side that they don't understand. Education is so critical here. Uh, Fred Hampton, if you watch the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, um, not, not a yeah, not going into the movie itself, but Fred Hampton said at one point when they were talking about programs, there's a video of him. You, you can uh, look at this at YouTube. He talked about how without political education, we'll have black colonists and people not understanding that we can fall into the same traps that our forefathers fell into or that other groups of people fell into. And without education, all this is, is more emotional capitalism. And who is utilizing this? This is this is really where we get into the problems. Who is utilizing cancel culture and all the factions underneath it to their benefit? Is it really marginalized groups? You're going to have a hard time convincing me of that. It's political. So the powers that be are the main ones who get to frame what cancel culture is, what things are deemed worthy of cancel culture and their language. And I don't know about you all, but the language they have is not the language I use every day, not the language that my family or people around me use. And that can be completely isolating to a technique that is supposed to be utilized by marginalized groups. Yeah, I mean, and the power dynamic, like you're saying, is really what has moved the needle in a lot of ways. Um, It's not necessarily that, you know, millions of people who may be low income or something like that have galvanized together. It's who then can back them or who then whose bottom line they can hurt that can hurt someone else's. So it's about leveraging your own voice to then be able to leverage more power from people that you more directly affect. Because in a lot of ways, you or I can't cancel anyone. Someone just on social media can't cancel someone. But Mm -hmm. it's the collective power you know, being targeted to shift people who are movement makers, whether be whether they be politicians, whether they be corporations, whether they be people with certain resources at hand, when you can use those things to send a bigger message, that's essentially what you're trying to do. Like we said earlier with the MLB, as an example, you know, voters were getting upset, politicians were getting upset. But I think the biggest story and repercussion that we've seen out of this is what the MLB did by moving away the All-Star game because they're an entity that people really enjoy. So what what does that do? It gets more people having to follow this who may not necessarily agree, but they now have to be a little bit more educated or the MLB at least has a, has a place and a position to educate people if they take advantage of it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's someone with a level of, or that's an entity with a level of power. It's not simply, uh, you know, your common Georgian citizen being the one that's actually wielding the hammer. 
it's them galvanizing enough to say, hey, like this is an issue and someone else coming in to step in and, you know, create the, the political power to do something about it. And in that exchange of power that you're talking about with the MLB uh, moving the all-star game out of Georgia, I think we need to be careful of how that transfer of power is handled. Mainly because these groups that are utilizing the power, MLB, are they really like ahead of the curve? Are they really, you know, telling you issues? And they sat there and, and thought like, hey, I'm really a we really need to focus on this issue or was the, the work already done and they're just reacting to the power that's already been built. And you're saying, and you're saying the change of power between, you know, the people who were originally might've been out there protesting, um, you know, voter suppression to the MLB enacting their power to, to make it a bigger issue than it right, is right now. Right. Right. And so in our culture today, the MLB saying something is considered a win. Right. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying anything that happened was a negative. But what I'm saying is that is that the intent of the organizers on the ground? Are they really getting the things changed that they want? Or are you getting um, or are you getting co-opted to a point where a larger entity can just come in and say, we understand this issue and this is the goal for it. Right. Like, do we have like legitimate control over how we're building up these issues or can one party or another party just come in take over the issue and then lay out a goal and, and that's the, the the problem we have is that groups can come in you do all this work you build up the understanding you build up the the uh collective problem and then someone can come in and tell you what the goal is and the prime example of that would be our political parties right it's mm-hmm. like you have people organizing on the ground consistently in local communities telling you what we need, what they would like to see. And then you have people who have never, not necessarily cared about those things, who are really invested in the game of becoming a politician, um, you know, coming in and saying, OK, I got it. I'll take this message and I'll run on it. But there's really I think that's where we see there's a lack of follow through with anything because it's not an authentic message necessarily coming from them. They don't have the ties to the community or they don't have the ties to the message to where it becomes a priority for them. And so part of what we do, again, to to wheel this back into the conversation of cancel culture, again, this goes back to maybe call out culture. We have to hold those politicians accountable for what they're doing. So if you're going to say, hey, these are the messages that I'm going to take to run on. You know, as voters, we have to then say, okay, are you holding these, you know, in high regard in the ways that you were saying that you would when you were campaigning? Mm -hmm. Joseph, I hear what you're saying. And I want to ask Julian this question, because I think you're summing this up as we just have to hold people accountable. See, the way out of, uh, you know, this bind we're in with cancel culture is to hold politicians accountable when they co-opt something. It's a small part of it. Okay, but just going off what you said, because I I think it's important because I think other people will have that perspective. And Julian, my my question to you is, do you think it's even possible to really hold these politicians accountable? Do we have any power there? I mean, we have the power to apply pressure, Mm -hmm. but do we have the power to, to really hold a president's feet to the fire throughout their turn? I... I honestly don't I honestly don't think so. And and in order it's my belief that in order to combat that issue where we essentially 
take these causes, we have these causes in our community, and then they get co-opted through the political system. Don't even introduce the factors that might eventually co-opt the what, what you're trying to do. So when it comes to specific issues and causes within our community that that have the potential to be co-opted down the line, we have to be very protective. I think the idea of having to be protective in this space is difficult. I think the thing about cancel culture that is so hard to deal with for some people and it's so useful for others is the fact that you can bring a ton of people in in no time. And so the the points at which you really get protection or ownership of your own ideas is very small. Once it gets out into social media, once it gets out into the public, it has a mind of its own. So how do you hold? First of all, like, how do you hold something like that? But I really want to build into another point because I think it's important that we talk about this right now is immediacy and immediate goals will always disadvantage uh, marginalized groups because the starting point for someone who doesn't know anything about the issue, uh, I'll take, you know, things happen in the black community for right now. Police violence is a starting point for issues. It's a symptom. There are tons of things deeper than that when you really get into why communities are policed the way that they the way that they are and what we can do about it. The problem is, is how do I extend the time it takes to accomplish an issue when people who are not of the affected community see an immediate goal right away and take this to a larger extent? The reason that Joe Biden has gotten the presidency is because we needed an immediate win. We weren't able to do the political work in order to get our ideas put on a pedestal. We were always dealing with, well, we have to get Trump out of here. And one of the problems I have with cancel culture is its need for immediacy. It's its need to exist quickly for things to happen fast. Microwave culture. And the problem is we have people that are truly been canceled in this Uh, society that are still canceled today. My idea of what canceling actually is, is prison. Mm -hmm. This is an older form of canceling that we don't actually talk about. People who go to prison and come out are not no longer considered part of society. They can't vote. They have problems. I mean, for a while, like it's hard to get a job, hard to get a house. Like you have to rely on so many people. And so when we talk about canceling, we can get those immediate goals, but the people who are organizing have to organize for this long term. That's never a part of the issue because you always have to deal with the people you're bringing in, see the immediate goal and can feel good by getting that immediate goal accomplished. Yeah, Caleb, you're exactly right. But I, I don't want to put all of this on cancel culture because I think part of this, too, is that a lot of times messages are fractured. It's not necessarily that a group has a single identity on something. And so a lot of times, you know, things are able to be co-opted because there isn't a set agenda or it hasn't been developed well enough Mm -hmm. in a sharp enough way that you can look at it and clearly, you know, almost like follow the bullet points of it. And so when you have all of these different groups that have different levels of interest where one group says, you know, you know, think about it like getting a grade. 
you know, some parents are going to be really pissed off if their kid comes in with a C. And the kid who's been struggling, getting, you know, Fs, he comes home and shows his mom, hey, I got a C on, on my report card, and she might be happy about it. So there are different levels and different stakes to which people are invested. So some people are ready to get off of the off of the train of, you know, being committed to something because they saw an improvement, at least in their situation, but they don't necessarily see the greater goal in mind. Right. So, yeah, it's really important to think about that that goal in mind, like Caleb was saying. But I don't want to lose track of what you were also saying, which is this idea of, you know, what really being canceled from society looks like. And, you know, I think we've seen this issue with the exaggeration of cancel culture trying to be compared to what we've seen from, you know, a dominant society and in a lot of ways, white supremacy, not only in this country, but in other countries, what it's been able to do to essentially eradicate entire communities from having an equitable voice. Um, and what what drives me the craziest about this is, is like we've seen people like uh Tim Scott saying things like woke supremacy as if woke supremacy is on the same footing as something like white supremacy when it comes to canceling people out of society. And so like, cool, you got somebody, you know, they had to, you know, walk down the street with a level of shame. They had their Cersei Lannister moment. Right. <laughs> right. But like, meanwhile, you know, just we look back, we saw what white supremacy has done in this country in terms of completely destroying communities of color's <laughs> ability to to live and prosper or have an equitable participation in American society. That's canceling something. But to that point, then I have to get into what you originally said then, Joseph. You're talking about, well, of course, there's no bullet points for a movement. So people are going to have uh, yeah. different thought processes on how the movement is going, they're going to have different outs. Like everybody has an out at a moment where they're like, all right, that's good enough. For sure. You don't get into to your second point and how they're intertwined. White supremacy is telling people when they should be out. White gaze is telling people when they should be out. Hey, this is good enough. We got some change here. And it can be totally like irregard the full nature of what we're trying to do. So you can't have both in the same. You can't have white supremacy working and then everybody have just a uh, a completely moral sense of uh, when an issue is, you know, when a goal is good enough or not. So, Caleb, I really I really want you to talk a little bit more on that. Like, what are some specific examples of white supremacy canceling? So the one thing I want to talk about is the idea of prison and how that is a form of canceling, how that is cancel culture. You know, in today's time, we talk about social media. We want we don't want to deal with someone's uh, lack of cultural knowledge, lack of understanding of society. That's basically what it is. You know, we don't want your your misunderstanding of culture today to offend us. And in a similar sense, you know, the reason that uh, a lot of black people were sent to jail originally was because they were considered a nuisance to white culture. You know, that is canceling. You're considered a nuisance to white culture. You don't fit in here. We're going to get rid of you. And uh, prison is so important to this conversation because really, what do you want to do with the people that you're canceling? Are you 
trying to change an action or an idea or you're trying to hurt the person. And what scares me about cancel culture so much is because some of the verbiage actually gets down into like, I want to get rid of this person so bad that what do you do, America? You create the largest prison industrial system of all time. Those kind of things make me feel hesitant about cancel culture, mainly because when we talk about who wields the power, if we don't have the ability to hold politicians uh, accountable, these institutions accountable for how they utilize our intellectual property of organizing, then these are the same people that have instituted this prison industrial system. These are the people who have upheld it. These are the people who have literally implemented it. And so if you're following a system that has in the past done this and you can't hold them accountable, I think the status quo ensues. And the status quo for many marginalized groups is crap. So are we actually building anything for change if white supremacy still controls how everything is being utilized? And I'm saying white supremacy on both sides. I don't care what kind of political spectrum you have to deal with what this is. And Caleb's completely correct about prison being a perfect example of cancel culture when it comes to just restricting the freedom of people. Like there's never ever going to be a greater example of that. But I think the next uh, point in that, the, the, the tangential point to it, is the idea of restricting wealth within communities. If wealth, it, well, if capitalism is a system that we live under and wealth becomes a proxy for opportunity, if I limit your wealth, I can cancel you from being within facets of society. I can cancel where you can live. I can cancel who you get to associate with. I can cancel... I can essentially cancel who you um, can be in relationships with. I can do so many things using wealth as a proxy for the ability to cancel you from aspects of society. And so prison's the most physical understanding of it. And I think we often understand physical limitations better than we might wealth. Um, so it, it becomes something, it's an easier entry point into that conversation. But I think wealth is equally as powerful. And I think that's why, and I think we have to remember that wealth has always been the source of a need for white supremacy. If I can galvanize around this idea of whiteness, if that can be the interest that I seek to take care of and I cater to, and I can do that by the introduction of race, and I can have a, a, a racial minority or a racial group that has less power within this caste system, then I can insulate all of the power, the opportunity, the wealth, the resources, anything to a particular group, which has always been a white group of people. And so in the current context, we always think about cancellation on the back end. We think of someone did something wrong and thus was canceled. But for so many people, the idea of being canceled has been preemptive. It's you're not going to have the same opportunities. You're going to have to stay in these same communities with less access and less opportunity. And so because we've taken this conversation and made cancel culture seem like this thing out to get people and primarily out to get white people, because it, I think it goes hand in hand with this, this evolving thing around PC culture. We've created this monster that's saying we are taking away the cancel culture that you've already had, those advantages that you've already had, those areas in which other people were marginalized from society and didn't have an, an equitable opportunity. And we're now confronting those things. And that is, I think, what the true fear with cancel culture is. 
It has very little to do with the fear of being called out. And it has everything to do with the fear of losing this this level of privilege that people have. And the two of you were talking about separate ideas in policing and the segregation of wealth. But those two things actually work in concert to cancel people, um, specifically black people. And when I say that, the, the first thing that I think about are the black codes. Like we saw how the black codes stopped black entrepreneurship. So they required all black people, all working black people, specifically the skilled sharecroppers of that time, to have contracts and be contracted under white landowners. So they couldn't actually go out and do work for themselves. They had to be contracted. And then on top of that, if you did not have that contract in your hands at all times, you could be stopped, they don't see the contract, and you're in the prison so in a matter of hours, you can go from being stopped from pursuing entrepreneurship for yourself all the way to being in prison and working as if you're, you're back in slavery times. And Julian, I, to your point, I think it's important to put both of them together. I think you're 100 percent right about that, because even when we see the amount of people being canceled now. I think it's easier to cancel people who don't have the type of wealth uh, set up or the, the history of wealth in this country as others. Uh, I think, and, and not to say that they don't deserve uh, repercussions for their actions. This is not to say that anyone should be outside of the legal system, outside of our rules, outside of our collective norms. But it's, it's, it's interesting when you see people from lower castes, and I'm using the word caste and not class. We'll get into that at another date too, but it, it's important to talk about caste. Uh, that people from the lower group, when they ascend to a certain level or they get things going or they, you know, they're out in the world and they make mistakes and they do something we think is reprehensible, we can cancel them with ease. And there are people who are just as bad or doing those things at a higher level, but come from a wealthy background, come from a, you know, a background of, uh, of someone from the higher caste that doesn't have to deal with that, you know, that can take that blow and get fired from their job or move away from visible society and still make money on things that we don't know about as a culture, as um, things that we can't see. And I think that's also the friction too. the people we get canceled are people who can't protect themselves uh, historically anyway. So how does that even get into uh, how does that even reinforce uh, this thing of cancel culture is actually changing power structures. And those power structures have always been informed by race, right? Like we can look at the, you know, crack and coke epidemic, like the ways in which bodies were policed had nothing to do with the, the substance itself. It had everything to do with the, with the end user. And the same thing with white and blue collar crime, the penalties that are, that are tacked on the ways in which we look at things, even the social penalties that we have for it. Like, we welcome people who commit white collar crimes back into society. They get movies, they get deals, they get all types of really great things. And on the other end, we castigate these people. Yeah, I, I just want to make a real quick point, Joseph, because we talk about yeah. theft, right? And when we talk about someone stealing from you, you think of a robber and a, you know, in a ski mask coming into your house when wage theft and, you know, theft at banks and overdraft fees account for way more money being stolen from you than anybody coming into your house. But when you talk about theft, you definitely get a, a, a picture and it's probably racial of who that is. 
Yeah, Caleb, I think we definitely project race onto certain terms and it qualifies a lot of things. Um, but to wrap up the show, I think it would be really good if we revisit kind of our major takeaways about cancel culture and things that we either want to keep in mind or maybe something that just went under discussed. So, right. uh, Caleb, what do you think your biggest takeaway in the cancel culture conversation is? Yeah, I think the thing that I want people to to really think about is, do you want to change an action or hurt a person? And I think sometimes you can get caught up in hurting a person um, because we want people to pay for what they've done that you don't really uh, care about the action being changed or go about the steps of actually changing an action. And, and what I want to bring to the forefront is this uh, book called Golden Gulag by uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Just want to make sure I get that right. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, check it out. You can buy it anywhere because uh, she talks about the effect of people going off to prison and uh, how that impacts the community, how like every person that leaves a community to go to prison can't be an asset for their family, for their neighborhoods anymore. And as much as we wanted to punish people for selling drugs during uh, the war on drugs, the continuous war on drugs, like we were actually making that problem worse while we were hitting people with penalties. So in the thing that you're doing, even if you are in the right in trying to hold this person accountable, you know, are you actually changing the action or are you hurting people and actually maybe harming the thing that you're trying to change? Yeah, no, that's really important. Um, Julian, did you have a major takeaway? Yeah, I actually want to bounce off of what Caleb just said, because um, I think we really have to be careful of mirroring. So there's this mirroring theory where it says uh, the oppressed eventually uh, mirror the actions of the oppressor. And mm -hmm. with this kind of moving line between right and wrong, like in history, in our country, white Christians have been the ones that have been essentially saying what's right and what's wrong and have had the power to cancel everybody. Right. Right? We're now in a time where that's starting to shift. Which is which is a good thing that just one sector of society doesn't have all the power to cancel people. However, when everyone else starts to get more power, if you're looking to just cancel somebody in the same fashion that they, they have previously, are you any better? Or are you just mirroring their actions? Um, and like Caleb said, is is canceling somebody actually getting somewhere? Yeah, um, and I think what I want to leave everybody with is this idea that you need to discuss why you're doing what you're doing um, and why you like something or don't like something. And so for in the case of cancel culture, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily like cancel culture, but it's for very different reasons. And I think when we fail to articulate what those reasons are, um, the messaging behind what we're doing can oftentimes be co-opted. And so I think about two very different groups who may not like cancel culture. So one might be uh, someone who's historically been able to marginalize a group or historically been able to get away with a certain behavior who is now facing uh, repercussions because of that. And thus they don't want to change their behavior. So they say, Hey, I hate cancel culture. It's out to get me. On the other end, there are people who are in these groups who have been marginalized and they dislike cancel culture because they think Hey, this lowers the the entry level for anyone to kind of to to 
to take up activism, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really doing anything. They're not being thorough and intentional with how they're strategizing. And so if I come to the table and I simply say, I dislike cancel culture, the way that's perceived to other people who don't understand the nuance of what you're really saying or the nuance of your experiences, uh, they can leave with a distorted view of what it is that you want. Um, And so just following the idea of having um, intentionality with things that you do, uh, have intentionality with things that you don't like and actually articulate that to people. Mm -hmm. All right, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to episode three of the United Amends Project. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, next week, we'll be speaking with Sophia Tocola, uh, a abolitionist and community organizer out of Seattle, Washington. Also, be sure to follow us on Spotify, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcast, and we really love all the five stars we're getting, so keep on doing that. Um, and be sure to share us with a friend. We'll see you guys next week. Peace. <laughs>